0: up guys after a week off we had a bye week um you would call it cake week not cupcake week we we took a little bye week um yeah man we recorded the pod for like three years together so um but yeah so we had to go through a lot of cake weeks i will say that um we're back for another episode of cast interference i'm chris marler of course i'm joined by conor o'gara um first and foremost what what holidays have i missed
1: i don't think you have missed Uh, arbor day you did miss uh saint patrick's day yeah um Mm -hmm. i think we have uh what's what's coming up easter is coming up. oh it's my mom's super bowl she is fired up as she should be you know like you get a packed house it's kind of like you're 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 it's like the one game a year if you're like a if you're like a smaller power five school and then you host like the top three school in the country. Mm-hmm. It's not like you sell out every single game. Not to say that your mom doesn't have sellout attendance at no, church. She doesn't you no. on Sunday. Okay, so perfect example. Then it's like, right. hey, once once you know Easter comes along, then you know you got a packed house. The atmosphere is just electric.
0: You know, the sermon's got to be on point. <laughs> when she comes out of the tunnel and goes down that aisle and takes a stage oh. on Easter. Um, no, you know what it reminds me of is the the episode of The Office where they are trying. They have the surplus. And they're trying to figure out if they want to do, like, like if they want to get, like, the new chair, if they want to get, like, a printer or whatever it is. And everyone's being nice to Michael. That's basically how my mom feels on Easter. For (laughs) those of you who don't know, my mom's a pastor. Um, But, yeah. So, anyway, we're we're coming into – we're recording this on a Thursday. And as of now, there's still one SEC basketball team left in the tournament. Not a great weekend Uh, last weekend. um, I don't even know where to begin. I Like, just – Want to talk a little bit about SEC basketball and and how was it a facade this year of of being tough? Because I honestly thought that the floor had been raised and it, it just it wasn't like the ceiling necessarily had gone super high for everyone. But I feel like the floor definitely was raised a lot with like especially these new hires. Don't use NCAA tournament results to look
1: back on five months worth of data and come to conclusions yeah. based on that. Just, just don't. Fair it's, it's dumb. Like it, people do it so much. We do it in bowl season. With bowl season, it's a little bit different because it's a one-game yeah. sample size. There are a lot of different things that go into it. But NCAA tournament is really, really hard. And the SEC had really a hard. bad. It's a bad NCAA tournament. I mean, there's no, mm-hmm. there's no other way to look at it. Like I, I have like a a, a bunch of numbers that I'm break, breaking down to figure out if it is the SEC's most disappointing NCAA Ooh. tournament ever. Which there's a real case to be made because it's not like the SEC has never had, um, a, you know, a, a tournament in which it didn't have a team in the elite eight. That's right. happened, like you know, that that's happened a decent amount every year. Yeah. I mean, so like there were in terms of just the elite eight, like the SEC getting left out of the field entirely. I went back and I looked up all of these numbers. So I have these like literally just sitting in front of me right now, uh, 12 times in which the SEC was left out of the elite eight, if that includes Arkansas, by the way, if that includes Arkansas. So we're going back to 1985. That is when the field was expanded from 53 teams to 64. So I figured Mm -hmm. like if you're dealing with 53, it's a
0: little bit different in terms of, you know, the the breakdowns, all that stuff. That's like a a third of the, of the Mm -hmm. overall tournaments. If it's it's 12, I mean, that's, that's still, that's still pretty high. And then
1: there were fourteen instances in which there were one or zero teams in the Sweet Sixteen, including twenty twenty two, of course. Nice. Two instances in which the SEC was left out of the Sweet Sixteen entirely: nineteen eighty nine, two thousand nine. Mm-hmm. But like those two years, it wasn't disappointing in the same sort of way because in eighty nine they the SEC went zero and five first round really?
0: the tournament like real
1: bad but nobody was seeded better than a six seed so it's like oh, right. how disappointing was it and then in 09 nobody was seeded better than an eight seed so it's like well you know that's different than having
0: five teams lose to double digit seats opening weekend you know and like that's also like we're you look at the youtube channel like we have multiple videos and you're talking about like from from you know two months ago of can the sec get two number one seeds like like you know there was there were some people trying to make the case that all i think you know all four number two seeds could have been sec teams pa- patrick young uh bless his heart new guy on sec network he's um, yoked yeah he is yoked he he also said that they've, the sec would get three final four teams um which did not pan out very well that's <laughs> just i mean like Sometimes I say stuff and I question it, but that was, that was next level. I think that like, for me, it was, you're right about the fact that it's very hard to win in March, right? Like it, like there's a reason why even coach is maybe the greatest college basketball coach of all time has what five total. He's been coaching at Duke for since like 1892. Mm-hmm. That's correct. All that yeah, that's correct. correct. <laughs> so um, I don't like the LSU thing might've been kind of expected because Will Wade was fired before the game I'm not going to get into the Bama thing. It was just, I mean, it was maddening to watch all season. And as soon as that white kid started hitting all those threes, I was like, oh my God, his name was Cormac. We got beat by a kid named Cormac. Happens to the best of us. No, it doesn't happen to anybody. Cormac is the name of like a genie that you would see in like that little thing, like the booth thing in big. I'm pretty sure that was the same name. So okay. yeah, not great. Um, what was your main takeaway from, from the weekend? Do you think Arkansas has any chance against Gonzaga?
1: By the time people are listening to this, so that game will be over. Yeah. I am going to guess. I'm going to guess that that game will be over. Um, the, the three disappointing teams, Arkansas is not disappointing, not disappointing. No. Made to the sweet 16. Second year, four year. Seed. Yeah. Second consecutive year in which you're also the last sec team standing, which mm-hmm. that matters. That program cares about that. They'll recruit with that. Yep. It's Tennessee it's Auburn. And then of course it's Kentucky. When we talk about disappointment, you can kind of say what you want about like the LSU and the Bama thing. Mm-hmm. Expectations were relatively low. You could say that expectations were still relatively low for Auburn, but you're still a 2C. You're still a 2C. I don't know if they test. were to their fan base. No, they weren't. And a all lot right. of people, if you kind of follow this, were saying, well, you know, there's this is just who they are. It's their DNA, their guard play. They, yeah, they're kind of all over the place, but Bruce Pearl lets them play with freedom and they're going to figure right. it out. And it's like, well you look back on it and what was the stat that I brought up that stat before about how they had one win against an NCAA tournament. The last win against NCAA tournament team was the Bama win on like February 1st. And then in yeah. that stretch, Jacksonville state is the lone NCAA tournament team that they beat in that That's entire of time. It's like, look, I, I had Auburn losing in the second round. So my disappointment level isn't the same. I had them losing to USC, but right. like you That's see the way bracket. they played it. My bracket is like, it's Okay. It's OK. It's it could be worse. I mean, I had Kentucky in the national championship. And if I'm doing yeah, that too. pick, if I'm doing that pick over again, I'm probably still picking Kentucky to go to the final four. Kentucky didn't lose to an NCAA tournament team all year until St. Right. Peters. St. Peter's didn't even beat a single power <laughs> conference team. Like people act like you was... should see these things coming. And we just you just sometimes can't. That's March.
0: Yeah. Like, I think I know Jack Mack from, from Barstool and, you know, another podcast, he, he, he went in on the St. Peter's thing. Cause I, I do those batch up breakdowns and I, I said very adamantly, this, this was the most boring school I've ever researched in my entire life. There, there was nothing about that school that was interesting at all. And then they get this like prepubescent kid. I forgot his name with the mustache. I just, my God. Um, I mean, so good for them because it's, it's a great story, obviously. Uh, but yeah, I think the disappointment level, like, like the it wasn't just the fact that they lost. I mean, Aubrey got beat by like what eighteen? Like a drum. I mean, bad, yeah.
1: bad. Like to the point where you you never really, in my opinion, like I never really felt in that game like they were close. I mean, Walker Kessler <laughs> foul trouble early on hurts Those them. five but, minutes. I mean that 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 was something that that probably didn't get talked about enough. I know mm-hmm. we spent a lot of time talking about his shoulder and whether or not he was fully healthy, but you kind of look at the way that it played out in the last month or so. And when he would get into foul trouble, it was just like kind of a different team and Jabari. They were really denying entry passes into Jabari. He had just a a bad night. And at times they've been able to overcome bad nights from Jabari. You go back to the Mizzou game where they're able Mm -hmm. to kind of work through it, but against a team like Miami who I'm blown away huh. the third double-digit seed like they do yeah. not look the part they basically have gone all like Duke mode for mm-hmm. the first two games of the NCAA tournament where like they had that win at Duke and then other than that it was like yeah they killed UNC but they really didn't have anything other than that that was really right. impressive and then they get to the tournament and they look like a world beater they don't look like double-digit seed at all and Auburn just ran into a team that was significantly better than them
0: yeah, I wish that I would have um, consulted with you about it not being close because I was just hammering Auburn in the live bets. Because Also, I like caught fire this weekend. I could not miss. I could not miss until I tweeted, I can't miss. And then the next bet was the Auburn thing, and it was really <laughs> bad. Um, I know. No, and so the, the Arkansas thing, the, the game in general, Like we don't need to get into it, obviously, because like this will be over by the time people listen to this. But the nine-and-a-half-point underdog, is very surprising to me. And it feels like I'm gonna hammer that, but that also makes me question if Vegas a thousand percent knows something I don't. I'm gonna I'm gonna punt on on all Arkansas discussions just because I don't want to get cold ticked. I know that by okay, the time people
1: listen to this, this will already be out. So I will all punt on that. But like the Tennessee thing is is shows you how frustrating March can be, yeah and how that is just like a byproduct of you have to show up. Momentum can Mm -hmm. only get you so far. It did not matter that Tennessee was one of the two or three hottest teams in the country. The fact that Joe Lenardi was sitting there on selection Sunday, telling you that they only deserve a three seed. And then after Tennessee loses, he tweets out that he's not going to get into it, but Oh, by the way, he's smiling. What a loser, by the way. Anyway, Tennessee was in a position where it absolutely should have gotten a two seed and losing in the NCAA tournament didn't change that. What losing in the NCAA tournament showed us was, yeah, this was a team that had been able to work through some of those offensive mm-hmm. issues, the offensive droughts that they had dealt with in the first part of the season, and even in the second part of the season where like, they didn't score more than seventy-two points in a game in the SEC right. tournament. They dominated. Michigan showed up. Michigan played really well down the stretch. They ran them off the three-point line, and Michigan was a team that was well deserving to be able to go on a preseason top-six team. Yeah, and like
0: like that's Tennessee's. That's their downfall right there. And like the fact that that's what I didn't understand from like the, the people that were like blowing up this Tennessee. Like, upset, right? Michigan went to the Final Four last year. And I understand Alida, a different Alida, team. Yeah. Alida, okay, so – and then on top of that, you know, like, you're talking about a – like, a very, very talented program who's, like, year in and year out. And and then you get back there. I mean, they beat Ohio State in a huge comeback they had, like, at the end of the regular season. I, I just – an eleven seed for Michigan seemed kind of odd. Um,
1: no, it was it was fair. It was it was perfectly legit yeah. because they didn't. They, the last time they had won consecutive games was February tenth. I mean, they were the most like hot and cold, frustrating right. team to watch and like I I thought there was a real case that they they should be very firmly on the bubble coming into the tournament. I even, I didn't think they should get in, but yeah, like let's do the A&M breakdown against Michigan and compare that side side resume. Cause like Michigan did not have a lot of quality wins in the regular season. Their best Mm. winner of the year was easily that Tennessee game.
0: Yeah. Well, and the other thing is too, is like, I mainly mean from a standpoint of like, you know, in football, it's, it's like the helmet, right? Like you don't want to go play. Like I just feel like looking at that 11 seed, like, seeing Michigan on the Jersey. I don't think it's what like factored into, you know, they got into like the minds of all the Tennessee players or that, you know, they were like rent free because they had to play Michigan, but it's like, yeah, you'd rather play St. Peter's. You'd rather see St. Peter's across the, the Jersey than Michigan. You know, if you're, if you're trying to get to the next round, um, you brought up Tennessee and, and we're going to transition out of, uh, out of some basketball stuff. Talk a little bit about the fact that they just signed a, or they haven't signed him yet, but they got a quarterback out of California, which, A lot of people were surprised about that, but Tennessee had a lot of inroads recruiting-wise in California for for several years, especially in the Fulmer days. Um, I'm not going to try to pronounce his name, but a five-star quarterback. Nico, Nico, love it. Um, I I think this is huge for a number of reasons. Obviously, a five-star quarterback is very important, and, and I get all that. But the fact that this kid, I don't believe it's just the NIL stuff. Obviously, it could be. And, and money is always going to influence stuff. We've seen Lane Kiffin talk about it. But believing in Heupel after one year and, and what he was able to do, like I, I feel like this is such a – should be like a confidence boost for everyone that may have had some doubts about Josh Heipel even after season one. Josh Heupel has had four consecutive seasons with top ten offenses.
1: That's he crazy. is – I mean, he is by any metric, one of the best offensive minds in the sport. Mm. I mean, he just is. And so he doesn't necessarily have this slew of NFL guys who we can point mm. to and brag about where like Dan Mullen still has that in a way that Hypo doesn't. I mean, Hypo's like, Drew Locke. Um, all right. <laughs> you know, okay. other than that, it, it's, it's pretty limited. And that's right. the thing that could take this over the top. So now, you know, you return one of the, the Probably one of the five to ten best quarterbacks in all of college football, in and Hendon Hooker. And you're going to get an entire offseason where Hendon is the guy. People that are kind of looking back on what he did this past year, who and this is something that we've talked about, are now probably a little bit more impressed and realizing, wow, like he, he actually like he ran really well too, and the turnovers were mm-hmm. were so minimal. He's got to improve on taking those sacks. But you look at those factors and you say, Josh Heupel in 14 months. Has done so much to rebuild the identity of Tennessee's offense, which was non-existent before he got there. And well, the obviously. biggest goal. Yeah. I mean like your entire goal should have been, have a fun offense, man. Just exactly. like have a fun offense year one, do the old miss thing, have an offense that kids want to come play, come play mm-hmm. and be a part of whether that's the transfer portal, whether that's recruiting, He did that in year one. And now we're seeing kind of that, that pay dividends. And even right. uh, with hooker staying now with Nico committing, don't think it necessarily means that Arch Manning is going to Tennessee, but no it does at least show you that he is recruiting to his style and his style is
0: working. yeah and I'll tell you what the other thing is too like the fact that that like that hire, I don't know how it's gonna turn out because like you know we've we've talked to people at the zoo like they were very frustrated with how fast the uh, the offense would go and and like the defense would just be worn out every single game it seemed like that was like the knock on him and which is I feel like I mean, you still take it because you're putting up, you know, ridiculous numbers on offense just trying to make a stop. That being said, the fact that that this guy the, the higher they made, I said it when it happened, it was so important. Like, even if it doesn't pan out, even if they go seven and five every year, to go from what they were what they had on offense, especially just with that offense and Jared Garantano and all the pick sixes, the, like not just like the the players, like the the fans deserve some fun as well because they, I mean, think about how many years in a row it's a miserable, miserable offense. It's bad.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, some of the numbers post Fulmer, especially mm-hmm. are just dreadful. I mean, dreadful. Yeah. Like I, I can't remember. It was Bill Martin who threw out that tweet about their explosive plays by year. And it was like, Oh my God, these fans Four. don't even know what it's like <laughs> to to see a play, a guy run for more than like 50 yards and yeah. you know, a passing players, something like that. So like, there are just a lot of things that would say, vibes are good. You should mm-hmm. feel confident about this offense moving forward. I was, I was dead wrong about their defense in year one. I thought yeah. Tim Banks was going to have the worst defense in the SEC. We had all the stats about not playing mm-hmm. complementary football. That was such a big point of emphasis, not only at um, Mizzou, but also at UCF and the way that mm-hmm. that fallout kind of uh, played out. But I think moving forward, yeah, the foundation's really good. Now yeah. you got to be able to recruit. It's still going to be dependent on the decisions that you make moving forward. You're still going to have to be able to elevate your floor defensively if you're going to mm-hmm. take that next step. If you're going to beat a Florida, Georgia, and Alabama, which of course, like you're only as good as those games if That's you're crazy, at Tennessee. Yeah.
0: yeah. And that kind of sucks, but it does go along with the territory. And then you know, a decade and a half ago that they were at the top of that totem pole as well. So, you know, it could definitely change. I don't think Georgia and Bam are going to beat them forever. Uh, but I will tell you this the last thing about Tennessee. Hypel definitely doesn't have to deal with 34 players in the transfer portal this year, which is it's yeah. even more astounding than the success he had in year one. Um, all right. Going into uh, a little bit more football stuff, not just spring practice, but I, I was talking to you about this off air and some of like the rumblings now that spring practice has started across the SEC of these players that, you know, might be breakout stars, like all these players in the transfer portal that are now at new, new spots. There's one guy for Bama in particular that, I love this kid when he was at his last school and I was, as soon as they, he made that announcement, I was like, Oh, that's good. That's real. good." Because I don't care what the depth chart is on any of that stuff. That kid could be a star if he's put in the right position. I'll get to that in a little while. What, what are the things that you are most excited about or people uh, that have transferred in or, or, you know, whatnot, like they could be the most explosive or, or basically this year's Wondell Robinson, right? You were spot on with that, that take last year. Thank you. I did not think Jameson Williams would be as good as he was. So I'll take an <laughs> L on that.
1: Um, I, I think the new trend that we're going to see in, in the SEC, power five running back transfers who are mm-hmm. really good this year. And to understand kind of why that dynamic exists in this way, you have to understand obviously the new rules of the transfer portal. Undergraduates can play right away with the one-time mm-hmm. exemption. They don't have to sit a year. And you think about what that means for the running back position in general, the shelf life. Why would you want to sit a year of your athletic prime? Right. if You can't make it as a running back. Why would you then, you know, try and like transfer somewhere else Um, as an undergrad? It's just a little bit more difficult. So I wanted to figure this out. This is going to sound really specific, but but hang with me on this stat. During the playoff era, here is the list of running backs who finished in the top ten in the SEC in rushing after transferring from a Power Five school. Right. Pretty simple. Yeah. I'll say it again. During the playoff era, (laughs) I'm trying to figure out. Like, I'm just trying to, you know, rack my brain and see who it is. Just top 10 in rushing. Do you have any,
0: any guesses? Because there's there's two. There's only two who have been able to do There's that. only two? Two. Oh, explain it again to the audience, and let me, let me do some thinking. I'll buy myself okay. 30 seconds.
1: During the playoff era, the list of running backs who finished in the top 10 in the SEC in rushing after transferring from a Power 5 school.
0: I don't I'm drawing a blank on everything here. There's so, one you'll
1: kick yourself for, and then there's one that you'll be like, oh,
0: yeah, all right, whatever sure go ahead i mean go ahead and tell me i, I i'm like wait did auburn have anything? go ahead and tell me Keyshawn vaughn oh from, i love Keyshawn vaughn going from illinois
1: to vandy and then trey yeah. carson going from oregon to, to texas a&m oh wow so, okay very specific right right like, and you if you think about it you would say well why why would you like, why are there so few of those? But think mm-hmm. about, like, who would be transferring to the SEC to play more and not just go to the NFL, right? right. It's like, who would all of a sudden take that next step once they join the SEC? Mm-hmm. It's, very, it's a very specific group. So, like, this year, though, that's totally out the window. Like, I'll be surprised if there are not multiple Power 5 transfers who are among the top 10 rushers in the SEC, a guy mm-hmm. that I know you're going to get to in a minute, so I'll save him for you. But Nathaniel Pete at Mizzou which Missouri running backs and Eli Drinkwits every year, man, that's, that's what they do. That's just kind of par for the course. Noah Kane, who's a guy I've been really high on for a Mm -hmm. long time, of course, transferring from Penn state, some offensive line issues, some health issues, just kind of scheme. Didn't really work out with him interested to see if that's better with Brian Kelly, with the way that Mm -hmm. they're hopefully going to be able to pass the ball with all those stud receivers. So I think that should benefit him. And then Zach Evans is the, is the obvious one, right? Coming from T from TCU going to Ole Miss, he had the the toe issue last year that sidelined him after he was pretty much a revelation in the first half of the year. Wild recruitment. I make the joke all the Wild time. Wild recruitment, dude. <laughs> if You funny. Google Zach Evans with any Power 5 school, you will get oh, yeah. a result. You will absolutely <laughs> get a result. It has gone that all over the place. And now he's at Ole Miss. He gets to team up with uh, also another, another transfer, uh, SMU transfer, Ulysses Bentley, the fourth yeah. all-time what a name unbelievable yeah. name so they get to take over in that backfield which of course has three dudes to replace so like all those guys would not surprise me at all if they are top 10 in the icc in rushing this year after transfer power five schools and then there's the one who is the most likely in the
0: clubhouse to do that jameer gibbs okay so this is this is something i was thinking about the other day and i was talking to fine about this and sick frag. but like everyone keeps talking about like if, like, if you're going to talk about Bama's offense going into next year, like, I don't think there's a ton of concern at this point. Most people just kind of assume it's going to be status quo and whatever. And they do return Bill O'Brien as the offensive coordinator. He, of course, got like the blame for a lot of stuff from fans. I, I thought he did a great job, um, it, in year one, especially with, with Bryce. But, um, Bryce Young comes back his freshman year, he has 4,800 yards, 50 total touchdowns. Like, when's the Heisman, right? Everyone is focused on on the receivers that left. Jamison Williams, John Mechie. I know Georgia fans won't want to hear this. Those two accounted for fifty six percent of his completion or of his yards and forty eight percent of his completions on the year. Um, What about (laughs) Slade? I'm not going to get started. So he's going to the NFL draft or NFL combine. And there was another white receiver who was actually an athlete and he just embarrassed him the whole time. I felt really bad for him. Um, it was, he was like bottom three or bottom five in every single thing he did overrated. He's gritty. He, he's not well, anyway, but no, so this is like, like you lose five of your top six pass catchers. You you bring back Cameron Latou and, and the two things that I'm most interested to see is, The offensive line is a huge question. I'm very surprised people aren't talking about more. They Bama gave up 42 sacks last year, which was 12th in the SEC, 106 in in FBS. 106 in FBS. And you think about, like, you had two five-stars that were number one and number two tackles in the country. They were freshmen, but they're just sitting on the bench. How does that develop this, this upcoming year? Because that was awful to watch a lot of times last year. The six yards rushing against LSU, the seven sacks against Auburn. But the, the number that keeps jumping out to me is this. And I talked to you about this before the 2020 season. How would how would Bama use Najee Harris in the passing game? And he ends up having, I think, 35, um, 35 receptions on the year, which was uh, he was top five on the team. Brian Robinson, who is by all means not a Najee Harris, he's not a guy that you like that guy is a between the tackles runner, right? Gets stronger as the game goes on. He is not somebody that's gonna like go get out in space and run you know a bunch of screen passes. North he South had 43 guy, yeah. receptions this year, um, which part of that's because, you know, Bama had a lot of injuries in, in, in the running back room and also late in the season, what you had at, at the receiver position. But Jameer Gibbs coming in, it, that kid was a stud on a terrible team. I mean, like a terrible team. And you start looking at the numbers. You're, you're talking about a kid that that I think he had 1,680 total yards, and that includes like return yards. He was able to score a touchdown in all phases of the game, but he, he averaged in his past two seasons 30 receptions a year, about 350 yards, but the explosive plays of this kid, like you want to talk about a guy that's electric in space. He had six straight games last year where he had at least one play over 50 plus yards in the game. I, I think that kid is going to be a stud in this, in this offense, And you have a lot of talent coming back. I think that kid's at the top, top of the pecking order. Yeah, uh, I, I don't have any problem with that. I mean,
1: if you, if you're trying to figure out among that group, like which one will lead the SEC in rushing, it's mm-hmm. it's Gibbs or it's Evans, just among the mm-hmm. the, the Power Five transfers. But um, yeah, it, you brought up the, the pass catching PFF's highest graded um, receiving grade. He had the highest receiving grade of any uh, FBS running back last year, which
0: right. is pretty darn good. And, and, He's uh, going well, to be quick. He time. did that on a team that averaged less than 200 yards passing a game in Georgia Tech, which is an awful offense. And and think about like the the
1: game the just the general game flow. Jeff Collins' mm-hmm. team like they were getting their butt kicked a lot. Like you watch the highlights of him, and they're like, oh yeah, they're done, they're not a touchdown in Northern Illinois. They can't just run him like four or five times in a row right now. They got to like right. throw and try and find ways to get him in space. <sighs> they should be able to use him a lot if he yeah. doesn't end up with 250 touches from scrimmage this year. I will be surprised, and that's not a knock on Trey Sanders. It's not a knock on Dell Williams. It's not a knock on Jason McClellan. I think they're going to get him involved so much because this is pretty rare to have like this little experience returning from the Alabama backfield and using that experience as like transfer experience, you know, use, like we have grown very accustomed to seeing there's at least one guy who's had, you know, like a hundred, hundred carries the previous season, who's coming back. That's just always the case. Right. And it's different this year in that regard. And so now, Gibbs should be in line for just a huge workload, in my opinion. I don't think they want to really rely on Trey Sanders in the same sort of way. He's been rumored to go to the transfer portal for a long time, which is like really? a TBD on that. Yeah, there have been rumors on that back and forth. It's, it seems like he tweets every like every six months, like, hey, I'm not entering the portal. It's like, yeah, I get it. But if there's smoke, usually there's some sort yeah. of fire. I, again, like, I, whatever. Well,
0: I hope the kid stays healthy, but yeah, Gibbs is going to get a ton of work. I think that, like, also, I mean, those numbers can be a little bit skewed just because of the fact, like, once you got to November – the three backups behind Brian Robinson, there were three backup running backs that were all out for the season, season ending injuries, just like one by one, they went down. Um, but what's interesting to me is you brought up the fact that 250 touches, because in the past, that doesn't seem like a lot for Alabama. We we looked at what Derrick Henry did about six years ago, but with Bryce Young at quarterback, there were several games last year, and not just close games, but several games where he put up 40, 50 plus passes. I, I thought the Georgia game, he was going to put up 60, going into that game for Bama to have a chance I, like i wonder what this looks like in the offense like if if, if it's something like a magic number like we used to see with Kadarius tony right like in florida where it's like you got to get him at least seven to eight touches a game you, you have to like if you have to force it to him that's fine but like i wonder what the number will be for this kid because i don't think they'll just use it between the tackles but you also like they're gonna they're gonna throw the ball again probably 38 40 times a game
1: yeah. He's best between the tackles too. Like mm-hmm. that's the interesting thing. Like you wouldn't necessarily assume that because he's versatile and because he actually does stuff in the passing game and he's right. made that a big part of his game, but he is best when he's working between the tackles and he's not just like a shifty guy. He gets North South in a hurry. He runs through contact. Like you watch the highlights of this kid and you're like, Oh, we would have been talking about him way more if he was on a team that actually had a pulse yeah. last year and in a place like Alabama even if he just replicates what he did last year and if he doesn't improve in his pre-draft season, which like one would think probably get improve in his pre-draft yeah, season, um, with all those resources, all those surroundings and everything. Um, as long as he is healthy, he is in uh, in good shape, definitely an all sec candidate. Yeah, I
0: agree. So I'm just happy it's back. Um, It's good to start talking about football again and just stop pretending like I know anything about basketball. It's just all over my head. So um, until next week, I don't know what holiday is this week. It was National Puppy Day the other day, which now that I say it, we're not going to get into. That's the end of the show. (laughs) See you next time, God. Happy Arbor Day.